Hello, I'm Andrew Suskind, and I'm a psychotherapist and author based in West Los Angeles since 1992, specializing in trauma and addictions. Welcome to our podcast, which I call It's Not About the Sex, also the title of my recent book. Here we focus on all topics related to compulsive sexual behavior, often referred to as sex addiction. In particular, we explore ways to build long-term, sustainable recovery while establishing more meaningful connection and greater intimacy. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints, brand new perspectives, and practical user-friendly tools toward living a more deeply connected life. Let's get started. Hey, Sue. Hi, Andrew. Good to see you as always. It's good to see you too. And here we are. We're, we're recording on a rainy day in Los Angeles. I love it. It's, it's been kind of unusual, the amount of rain we're getting. Well, just recently, right? Because the winter winter was pretty dry. This was a dry winter, so yeah. we do need it. And the air feels cleaner, which is fantastic. Yeah, it is a nice cleaning feeling. I said that yesterday. And, and I reminded a person, a friend of ours who just moved here, that it's going to be beautiful in this like couple of weeks after this because they'll just see the mountains and the purple and all the beautiful spring flowers are just going to be just shining bright. I can't wait. The wildflowers are are blooming as we speak. They are popping up. Yeah. So today we're be- going to be talking about codependency and boundaries. And these are two terms that are often used but often misunderstood. And so hopefully in our talk today, we'll have a chance to look at the two terms, dig a little bit deeper as to what they really are, and to see how they tie into sexual addiction and and long-term recovery. Sounds great. Excellent. So where to begin? Probably begin in your book. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's true. That's a good place to start. So... What are the typical categories associated with the codependency? Codependency. Well, let me go backwards. Let me just start with what codependency really is, according to some of the experts. How's that? All right. So I have a few colleagues who have studied codependency at length, and there is not really an agreed upon definition. There's there's all kinds of different ways of looking at codependency, and there's lots of folks that don't even use the word codependency. But I do think it's important to consider what we're talking about and, and how it intertwines with any kind of addictive compulsive tendencies. So for instance, I used to work with a colleague named Raleigh Glass, or Roland Glass, mm-hmm. but he goes by Raleigh. And Raleigh came up with an awesome definition. He said that codependency is a painful dependence on anything outside of yourself. Oh. Yeah, a, a painful dependence. So we're not just talking about like feeling dependent on somebody, but we're talking about an internal pain that results from leaning or depending on something outside of yourself. So it could be a relationship. It could be a behavior It could be a substance. So really, he's saying anything outside of oneself that causes that painful dependence is a form of codependency. Interesting. Um, And is that pain something that people are aware aware of generally? Or well, like with any pain, oftentimes the pain isn't paid attention to until it gets to be bad enough. 
right? If the pain mm -hmm. becomes more in the realm of suffering, usually that's when I see my clients come into my office. Okay. So it does take a certain level of pain before it wakes somebody up. Now, what he also says is that codependent adults used to be kids that ra raised within very high stress, low nurturance families. So I'll say that again. These are people who, as children, were raised with high stress and low nurturance. And those were two variables that, that he found across the board. So that's really, really important. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, th I thought that was very well said and, and very simple to understand that stress and the absence of nurturance are really the, the things that, that make people vulnerable to a lot of codependency. Right. It's almost like a hole that was never filled and then they just gravitate towards filling that hole, but it gets overfilled. Yeah. yeah. In 12-step in rooms, sometimes they talk about the hole in the soul. And okay. that's exactly what we're talking uh, about, yeah. for sure. Now, there was another colleague who was a terrific family systems, addictions, codependency expert named Terry Kellogg. And Terry said that codependency appears as if the problem is about the relationship. But it's really about the absence of relationship with oneself. Mm-hmm. So that's important to remember, too, that if, if somebody's looking outside themselves for a relationship and blaming the relationship or putting a lot of weight on the relationship, they're barking up the wrong alley. <laughs> it's more about what's missing within oneself and, and, and how, how does the person find more support or reinstate support uh, within themselves. Are you seeing that there's um, ways to help guide people to figure out how to have a relationship with themselves? Big question. <laughs> of course, I, I, I am an advocate of therapy and 12-step and coaching and meditation, mm -hmm. and the list goes on and on. Right. But really, anything that reconnects someone with their internal voice. And so there's not a cocky not a cookie cutter answer right. for how that works. But instead, there is an opportunity to do some trial and error and see what really reconnects. But it is possible. I mean, it is possible to have a relationship with oneself because I, I think a lot of the times it's never modeled. Like it's not like a parenting skill or something that's been taught. And maybe now people are becoming more aware of that. I don't know, but have a relation with oneself it's, it seems like a huge big umbrella and um be interesting to hear about steps on how to reconnect that i think that if there are a dozen therapists lined up with one another you're going to get 12 terrific answers and they're all right and for an individual who's feeling empty inside that hole in the soul hopefully they can pick one of those things and, and start out with something mm -hmm. that gets the ball rolling. So a lot of people will not go to a therapist ever, right. but we're really talking about an awareness and an opportunity to do something that is sometimes breaking the family legacy. Yeah. Fantastic. So should we talk about the categories that are associated with codependency? Of course. So 
There's four basic categories. And again, there's different beliefs about this. There's different research on this. But I believe these are the four primary categories of codependency. Caretaking, enabling, fixing, and rescuing. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to say that again. Caretaking, enabling, fixing, and rescuing. And it seems to me like they, they could cross over very easily. It's not like one or the other. It's kind of probably a combination for sure of all of those. They're often layered. Mm-hmm. That's right. Wow. So if someone, I mean, obviously there's some healthy relationships that where you're taking care of someone and, and it could be a short-lived thing, but are you talking things that are more long-term or just one-sided? Is that how it works? I'll I'll give you an example. Caregiving, and this is just semantic, but caregiving generally is something that has boundaries that go along with it, that has self-care that goes along with it. What we're talking about when we use the word caretaking is really the loss of self. I see. Yeah. So that's when we're talking about, about the loss of it's tricky, right? <laughs> it is tricky. Yeah. It is tricky. It's not easy to articulate. Yeah, the loss of self. Yes. Within the taking care of. Exactly. So right. like caretaking often implies that that we're neglecting ourselves and we're putting so much into the care of the other person that it's totally out of balance. So you're losing sense of your own self in the taking care of, but the person who's dependent on you is doing the same thing in the receiving of it. They're they're just allowing it to happen and they're not even making a, their own decision. This is true. And, and oftentimes, neither one is actually conscious of their role. Right, right. So our job as therapist or as coach or, or someone who is a family systems expert or addictions expert is to help shine the light on these patterns because these themes and patterns as we said, start in childhood and show up in adulthood. So you think that children, like back to what you referenced about Kellogg and children, is that, oh, no, maybe it was Gloss, sorry. <laughs> when you re- referenced that, do you think that um, children seek out that same type of um, relationship as they get older as they did when they got younger? Is that basically what he's saying? But Yeah, that, that themes and patterns of childhood always will show up in adulthood if they're not addressed. So if we start to explore what those themes and patterns have been been like as a kid, we have the opportunity to make a detour and not Mm. perpetuate it over and over again. I like your shine the light example. And talking about shining the light, if we shine the light on, on a blind spot within ourselves or of a client, it can never be a blind spot again. Oh, okay. Yeah, because oh. because all of a sudden it's illuminated and it's in your awareness or in my awareness. Right. And then we can't go back. Right. Wow. Fantastic. Well, there's one for therapy. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Cool. So um, let's talk about some more examples of how codependency shows up in all of us. Absolutely. So... You might have heard of the expression black and white thinking mm-hmm. or binary thinking, which seems to be one of the catchwords today. That's an example of codependency. Okay. When we get caught in that all or nothing black and white kind of thinking. Another way that 
we can pick up on or identify codependency is personalization, which means, am I taking it personally, right? Is it, am I making it my fault? Am I the bad guy? So that's, that's that Mm -hmm. indicator. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then lastly, or not lastly, but another quick example is one of my favorites because it's what I used to do and still do occasionally, which is intellectualization. It's quite a word. It sort of flows off I mean, the tongue. Just saying it is impressive. <laughs> <laughs> and and intellectualization is is really about getting stuck in one's intellect mm-hmm. and not being able to access deeper emotions or experience of oneself in a in a more somatic way, for instance. And it's really a way of protecting oneself, right? All of these things that we're talking about are survival strategies. I see. So they're like coping mechanisms Yes. that we put in place without knowing. But if someone pointed it out to you, because I know there's, there's people I know that have black and white thinking, and if someone was to point it out to them, is that shining the light or is it more deep that you speak of when self-realization kicks in well it really doesn't matter where the message comes from it matters when the listener is available to hear it so hopefully there's an open heart or an open mind to hearing others impressions or or the impact Mm. of of oneself on others so just saying it to somebody isn't necessarily going to cure them Unfortunately not. It's a little <laughs> bit slower than that. So let's talk about what codependency um, has to do with problematic sexual behaviors. Absolutely. Cool. Really important. Mm-hmm. So one thing I want to say, that because this is really the core of our talk today, is that codependent behaviors or codependency creates more vulnerability to ongoing Uh, sexually compulsive behaviors. So when we're talking about someone's compulsive um, tendencies, whether it's sexual compulsion or or actually any compulsion, Mm -hmm. we're also talking about underlying issues. And we're talking about things like relational trauma or childhood trauma, developmental trauma, we sometimes call it. And codependency is intertwined with that. And codependency is often that attempt to feel better, right? Okay. And and when that's not addressed, and when it keeps showing up, it actually makes it more difficult to get longer term, sustainable, more satisfying recovery from sex addiction or anything else for that matter. So codependency can create more vulnerability to relapse if it's not addressed. That's right. And okay. I want to share an example of that because okay. in my book, I interviewed about half a dozen, no, not about, I interviewed <laughs> half a dozen um, individuals who identify as being in long-term recovery from sexual compulsivity. And I, this is not her name, but this is what Susan said to this question. And the question goes like this. Codependency makes you vulnerable to relapse if not addressed. How would you describe codependency in your relationships and how have you been working on it? And Susan says, before recovery, I would take people hostage 
and want them to do everything for me, and I would do everything for them. There were no boundaries. In recovery, my boundaries are stronger, and because of all the writing and step work, I have more awareness of who I am, what I want, and how to verbalize that. A lot of my codependency was from not knowing who I was or what I wanted. I would glom onto people and become a chameleon to be liked by them. I would find people who needed more help than I did and try to help them instead of helping myself. Mm-hmm. It's really poignant, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I like that whole idea about boundaries. I mean, I know people talk, have been talking about boundaries forever and ever and ever, but to hear it in her example, it like makes sense. Right. To me. And having interviewed Susan, I know how painful it was to come from that place of codependency and lack of boundaries. And so for her, a core of her recovery and how she sponsors others and how she works the steps is really giving a lot of attention to her relationships all the time to see if she's falling into those old patterns and to create new patterns. It's interesting because I think like with every relationship there's going to be different types of boundaries and and to be clear about um what the boundaries are and if friends have different boundaries than acquaintances and and just figuring that out I'm sure like it, it it's a process for many people but that they can be you can have different boundaries for different relationships and different people Absolutely. And if you're up for it, and, and this is something that I've done as part of working the steps, is it, it's really a matter of taking a magnifying glass to each relationship in your life, whether it be family members or friends or loved ones, wh- whoever it might be, colleagues, and taking a look at what is your role in that? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you participate in that? Mm-hmm. And there's a couple different types of boundary categories. And again, this isn't exhaustive. This is just a few ideas. Mm -hmm. But there's blurry boundaries, right? When the boundaries are really murky and undefined. There's rigid boundaries when they're too tight and and often distance people from from yourself in order to protect you. And and then there's kind of like the Goldilocks principle, which is what is in between the two, right? And mm-hmm. and sometimes it takes effort and awareness to to find that happy medium, whatever that balance may be, so that boundaries are permeable but not too flexible either. Right. right. Interesting. You've mentioned Pia before. Um and you have information from her that you wanted to share as well. Right. So as I've mentioned in other podcasts, one of my favorite addictions and codependency and love addiction specialist in the world is Pia Melody, who developed a model at the Meadows uh, out in Wickenburg, Arizona. And I was fortunate enough before she retired that I spent a week with her in a very small, intimate training. And one of the things that I, I learned from Pia is that boundaries are not just about emotional boundaries. They're, they're really fourfold. They're about physical boundaries, 
sexual boundaries, emotional boundaries, and intellectual boundaries. So I'm going to say that one more time. They're about physical, sexual, emotional, and intellectual. And I'm not going to go into all the details about them today, but it's important to keep in mind that boundaries are multifaceted and that there's something that we can look at and, and revisit again and again over time to determine, is this a relationship that's balanced? Is this a relationship that has some kind of give and take and, and some kind of unconditional love, hopefully? Not that every work colleague mm. has that. Right. But you, you, you know what I mean. I think there's something really powerful about looking at boundaries from all sides. Yeah, it's interesting. And do you think that you can create boundaries alone or do you need to have the other person be involved in that? It's a fantastic question. It would be great if somehow we could sit down and, and really have a, a honest conversation with all the people in our lives. But actually, it's more about what's going on inside of us and really taking a closer look at how the relationship works and how much we want to invest in it. And for instance, nowadays, I'm very particular about who I spend time with, right? I, I really want to invite emotionally reliable people into my life. And it's not always possible, right? Every friend, every loved one has, has different qualities and abilities to bring things to the table. So it's, it depends on the relationship. But more than anything, to answer your question, it's, it's really about giving yourself the opportunity to take a close look at maybe what you haven't looked at mm -hmm. before yeah. and to determine how you want to show up for that relationship. And then the other person will have a choice from there. Right, right. Yeah, I like that. So right. to illustrate this, just to go back to my book for a second, there is a person in my book, not his real name, <laughs> uh, named Colin. And the question to Colin was this, describe the boundaries in your life and in your recovery today. And this, this is what Colin had to say. I came from a household where there weren't many boundaries and the boundaries we did have were fused, meshed, loose, vague, and just not respected. I didn't know what they were or how to maintain them, even if I did. What I've learned in recovery is that my boundaries are my responsibility. I have to state them in a way that's compassionate and neutral and not blow the other person out of the water. My boundaries are what works and what doesn't work for me. I cannot assume the other person is going to figure that out. Okay, nicely done. Yeah, so Colin actually was being more specific about bringing his boundaries to the other person, which is a brave thing to do. I don't recommend it with every relationship, but he felt that it helped him clarify and be more forthcoming with cool. what he was dealing with. So let's cross into some emotional um, issues that people might have with boundaries and, and anger specifically. So uh, what does anger have to do with boundaries? What does anger have to do with it? <laughs> what does anger, is that a song? I think it could be, but no. I promise I'm not going to sing to you. <laughs> okay. 
Thanks. So I used to think that anger was a bad thing. Like when I was growing up and even as a young adult, I thought anger, ooh, that, that, that's awful. I'm not an angry person. That's, that's, that's not something I want to touch. But in reality, anger is a life force. It, it's a life force and it's a life energy. And what anger allows us to do is to ask ourselves what feels right and what doesn't feel right. What's acceptable, what's unacceptable. What do I choose to participate in and what do I choose not to participate in? So in other words, anger and accessing one's anger actually allows for the boundaries to get clearer. So when we're able to ask ourselves, do I really want to do this? Or on the other side, what do I really want to do? And then we can answer the question by saying yes, no, or maybe. I don't know about you, but sometimes I forget that I have those options. <laughs> Somebody asked me to do something and I immediately jump in and say no, or immediately jump in and say yes. And, and then you, yeah. But where does the anger play into that? Like, is it something that's festering or... Do you feel angry that you made a decision or you have to make a decision or you haven't made a decision? That's interesting. I think it, it probably has a couple of possibilities. So there may be anger related specifically to what you're talking about at that moment or what you're deciding at that moment. But most of the time, anger and resentment is something that isn't even related to what's happening at, at the time. It's something that, that could really be from a long, long time ago, right? A historic part of us that never got expressed. And so, for instance, I'll just use myself as an example. I often say no right away to requests nowadays. And the reason why I do that is not because I actually have thought it through, but because I have in the past, especially as a kid, I felt obliged and I felt like I might be actually intruded upon if I said yes. And so nowadays, I'm actually trying to bite my tongue a bit more and not answer so quickly and say, you know what, I'll get back to you on that. But it is part of my own energy that is, is some from the past and some from the present. But, but I think that you're raising a really important point because here we are talking about anger and anger has many layers. And so instead of having to give a quick answer or figure it out so fast, it's okay to breathe and, and take a moment and, right. and get back to someone. And that, that actually works much better for me. I find that, um, yeah, I agree with your analysis of anger used to scare me. And what I realize now in my wisdom is that it's okay to have anger. It's an emotion and I allow yourself to feel it. But I think if, if you fester in it, it becomes an issue. Like any, if you hold on to it too long and you're carrying that, cause there's energy that comes with anger that it's good to evaluate. Like, why am I feeling angry? Like what exactly is this? And then, you know, go through it. Like, okay, this is becoming, it has nothing to do with your decision, but it has something to do with the past. Um, but to be conscious of that is fantastic. And, and to make that decision 
in a in a better way on a better level thinking you know but it's okay feel feel some anger around it and let it go exactly yeah. but but i i think the word festering caught my attention because it is can be kind of ugly and infected if it's something that is held on to for too long right. and then gets somehow um, salt in the wound kind of uh, situation where we don't even realize we've been holding on to something, but it has been festering for a long time. Right. And I think the fourth step of the 12 steps is, is fantastic for this. I mean, from a more cognitive processing way to use the resentments as a way to learn about oneself, right? Right. You know, why am I resentful? What mm -hmm. role do I play in this? What am I willing to do differently? You know, all of those things that are part of understanding and sorting out what something is about, which is really ultimately about awareness and hopefully calling on a power greater than oneself mm -hmm. to, to lift the festering, right? Anger in itself is super important. But when it turns to rage or gets stuck in resentment or festering, that's when it's a problem. It's, what is that Buddha? It's a hot coal in your hand that if you keep holding on to it, it's going to burn you. Exactly. That's, that's for sure. So I also wanted to talk about disappointing others because sometimes when we say no, it ultimately will disappoint others. And, and I believe that disappointing others is part of life. And being disappointed by others is part of life. And disappointing others is, is actually part of the deal. And if someone's disappointed by a no, it's really our job to endure whatever feelings they're having and to not have to make it all better. Okay. Right? To let them have their feelings, let me have my feelings, and then yeah, go from there. Yeah, this is a big hot point for me, so I can't wait to hear this. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is just an example. It's a hot point for all of us. I don't want to disappoint anyone. <laughs> exactly, exactly, me either. But but the thing about it is I think it, it is a growing opportunity for, for us to be able to know what we want to do and what we really don't want to do and and to preserve our energy and to be more specific about what feels in alignment with, with who we are. And in the book, um, I'm going to talk about Colin again. And the question was simply this, describe, oops, that's the one we did before. So oh, yeah, we don't want to, page one sixty two. you got it. The question was, what is your greatest challenge with boundaries today? So maybe this one's for you, Sue okay. and me. <laughs> so, this is actually from Alex. Alex says, it's hard when I disappoint somebody and they're upset with me. My mom will say really awful things if she doesn't get what she wants, and that's very painful. My work is to go through the pain without reacting, which is what she wants. It's really hard. There's no easy way to do it. I go through the pain of displeasing a person displeasing myself and all the emotions that go into saying no. Wow. Not easy. Yeah, it's not easy. All of this, by the way, is a practice, right? Because mm -hmm. these are new muscles. These are new, new neural pathways. And ultimately, if we're able to build 
muscle around this or, or carve out neural pathways around things like disappointing others, it actually makes recovery in general that much stronger because we don't have all of that buildup and residue that sometimes goes along with not taking care of ourselves and caretaking others, rescuing, fixing, etc. So hopefully as we grow older, it gets less and less and less. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes it, it can, we can have a little regression or relapse, but hopefully we're, we're in a trajectory towards healing and, and doing it differently. Right. Well, I would assume that relapse would bring a lot of disappointment um, in recovery. And I would feel, I would assume that that would be a burden that people would need to try to figure out and diminish. Yeah. You know, relapse is part of recovery. Yeah. And I always say, and I take this from one of my mentors, it's not the mistakes that count. It's how you deal with them. And when I first heard that as a recovering perfectionist, I, I really felt relief mm -hmm. that, huh, so I messed up. I, I, I did something that wasn't in my integrity. But ultimately, if I'm staying on course and staying connected and, and moving forward and, and bringing as much of me as possible, you know, mind, heart, spirit, etc., that that's hopefully what I can live with. And and each of us puts our head down on the pillow at night mm -hmm. and knows, you know, what we're doing with our, our lives and our choices. And hopefully that can all be something that helps us get a good night's sleep. Right. It's all growth. So I, I think we're winding down on this discussion. There's really so much more we could talk about around boundaries and codependency. But what I want to end with is, is just this idea that if you illuminate it, it's no longer a blind spot, right? And if it's no longer a blind spot, you have awareness and choices and actions that you can take. And so that's really the direction that I, I really encourage everyone to consider. I like that. Great. So thank you so much, as always, Sue, for joining me. And we will see each other the next time. Sounds great. Bye, Andrew. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening today. It was so terrific to have this conversation with my friend Sue and really talk about something that oftentimes is not talked about. And so I'm just really pleased to have this particular topic looked at more closely. Be sure to give us a five-star rating, and we welcome your comments. And also, you can share us on Spotify as well. And if there are things that you want us to discuss in the future, just, just let us know. And I do look forward to sharing more and more with you in, in future podcasts. And thanks again for being here today.